It's good to see you this morning here at Covenant. I hope that uh, you are glad to be here. I hope that this week has not been the kind of week that has so disrupted your heart that it makes it difficult to be here, but be here you must, and by God's sovereign hand, be here you are. So welcome to Covenant. As a church family, we're making our way through Mark's gospel. We're at the scene of the transfiguration of Jesus. That uh, word, uh, transfigured, actually shows up in our passage, a very unique passage. I have a couple of cautions for us as we uh, look at this passage. I'll save that for later. For now, uh, I'd like to address little theologians. I'd like for you to think about driving down the road and seeing uh, all kinds of signs on the road, signs with arrows, signs with big messages, signs with lights telling you what's coming ahead. A sign after sign after sign as you're uh, on a uh, road trip with your family. While I'm preaching, draw every sign you can imagine. Every sign. With lights, without lights, arrows, no arrows, whatever the message is, some signs have big fiberglass cows hanging on them. Draw that. Draw every sign you can think of, but not what the sign points to. Every sign that you can think of should fill the page, but not really what the sign points to. Just the sign. Our passage this morning is from Mark chapter 9, and we will begin at verse 2. But before we read that passage, join me in prayer. God, our Father, thank you for speaking to us, making yourself known. We admit our ears are dull, that we arrive this morning frustrated with events of the week. But as you speak to us, you give us also understanding, and you do so through your Spirit. Father, would you speak to us and give us understanding for your name's sake. Amen. Mark chapter 9, uh, beginning at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of our Lord. 
Well, I'm sure that you've gathered from hearing this passage that there's a lot going on here, and a lot of what is going on is actually quite mysterious. It's almost as if you need me to reveal the passage to you, but the passage is itself about, well, about God revealing Himself to His disciples. The revelation is already there before us. For this kind of literature that is clearly a supernatural, I want to offer two cautions. I don't, I don't often expose uh, the methodology of preaching from this pulpit. I just, I just come and I stand here and I explain God's Word. But thinking about this passage in particular, uh, two cautions that I uh, tell myself, I want to share with you. The first caution is this. As you read this passage, don't try to solve every riddle. Don't try to solve every riddle. And notice that, that as Mark is telling this, Mark is getting his information from Peter. And as Peter is telling Mark what happened, Mark wasn't there. Peter was there. And as Peter is telling Mark what's happened, notice that Peter seems to have not given every answer to the riddle. And then as, as Mark, he writes this under the authority of the Holy Spirit, and he is uh, writing to an audience of Christians in Rome, Mark himself doesn't see fit to, in this passage, solve every riddle, does he? He's not answering all the questions that we ask. And my first caution is, don't try and solve every riddle. There are things in this passage that I don't quite understand, and I feel no shame for that at all. I normally read at least three commentator, uh, commentaries in preparation for every sermon that I preach here, but it's usually five. There's three go-tos, and then there's, there's five that kind of get, get swooped in. You need to know that the commentators themselves don't understand all the details that are happening in this passage, and so that's my caution uh, to you, even as it's my caution to myself to not answer all those riddles from this pulpit. So don't solve every riddle. Some of the details are here. We're not sure exactly why they're here. That's the first caution. The second caution is this. Let's together not miss what's evident. Let's not miss what Mark has actually shared with us, again, under the authority of the Holy Spirit. And you see those two actually work together, don't they? We, we want to we crack the code, we want to solve the riddle, and in our haste, well, we don't do a very close reading of the text before us, a text that we believe is inspired by the Holy Spirit, a text that we believe is our very life. This is the Bible. So those are my two cautions. I hope that's not uh, too um, controlling to you, but I think about these as I uh, prepare messages to be delivered here. But I want us to see uh, as we begin that there's something that's really on the minds of these three disciples, and we can't miss that. What's on their minds is Jesus, he seems to grab them and take them on this high mountain. Uh, Their minds, Mark has let us know, are spinning with the uniqueness of Jesus. How is it that Jesus is unique? That's in their minds. What's unique about this man? And also what's in their minds is how can this man be rejected and killed? That has to be in their minds. I'll I'll prove that later. But what's also on their minds is the resurrection of Jesus. We're actually told that clearly in the passage. The resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus would die and then be raised from the dead. 
And what's also on their mind is the power of the kingdom of God. What, is, what does it mean to, to, uh, to be a part of a kingdom that is full of power? Now, those thoughts are clearly on their mind. They don't necessarily make sense to them. But the uniqueness of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, the power of the kingdom of God. And as they uh, go up this high mountain with Jesus, what they're learning is they're learning that Jesus is God's appointed instrument of his kingdom, even though he must die. God is, or Jesus is God's appointed instrument of his kingdom, even though he must die. He must be rejected. He he must suffer. He must uh, be raised again from the dead. Uh, Jesus is God's appointed instrument of his kingdom, even though he must die. This passage is about revelation. This passage is about the disciples uh, seeing something that they didn't see before. It's about God uh, making his glory known. And I, I have for you a four-point sermon, four uh, aspects of the glory of God that's made known in Jesus. Uh, God makes his glory known in the leadership of Jesus. He makes his glory known in the purpose of Jesus. He makes his glory known in the submission of Jesus. And he makes his glory known in the instruction of Jesus. Leadership, purpose, submission, and instruction. And we're going to spend time with just the first half of the first verse, verse 2. Don't don't let that uh, sadden you because you have to sit down and get ready for a very long sermon. We're going to, the sections will get larger, but for just the first half of the sermon, the glory of God and the leadership of Jesus is Jesus, he teaches his disciples and he teaches a crowd. We know that from last week. You can see it in, in 9 verse 1. Jesus has been teaching the crowds and disciples. This is, what, this is what he has said. Look at 9 verse 1. That truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Your questions would be their questions. Who are those individuals and what in the world does this mean? That's on their minds. But look what Jesus does. His leadership is such that he, he decides that, verse 2, he's going to make them sit on that for six days. For six days, they're going to wonder about uh, Mark 9, verse 1. And then, what exactly are they uh, doing those six days? You know, we're told they're, they're, uh, they're uh, moving, aren't they? Jesus, he's teaching as they're making their way to Caesarea Philippi. You think those six days, they're, they're walking. I mean, Mark doesn't tell us. But it could be that they're walking and they're pondering. You know, Jesus has taught them that he must be rejected and killed and rise again uh, from the dead. We already know that Peter, he doesn't like this, and surely the disciples don't like this either. And then Jesus, uh, he says that there uh, are some standing here with me now who won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God in its power. Day one, they're thinking about that. Day two, they're thinking about that. Are they walking or are they standing still? Day three, they're thinking about that. That's interesting. And after six days, almost for no apparent reason at all, after six days, remember, there's the disciples and the crowd. The disciples and the crowd. So 12 and a crowd. But after six days, Jesus, he finds three of them. Just three. What if they're not all standing together? What if in this traveling pack, Jesus has to go through and he has to pick them? Call, hey, Peter, come here. John, come here. And Jesus, he, he pulls these three individuals and he's going to take them someplace. He's going to take them high up on a mountain. You think these three could be the, the folks mentioned in 9 
verse 1. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see this kingdom of God. Everyone among the disciples and the crowd would think exactly that. These are those three. We've been waiting for this for six days. And here, uh, these individuals, Jesus, he goes and and he uh, plucks them out of the crowd. And the crowd, they might not ask this. Jesus is now what you're going to do. But we would think that the disciples would. Because the three disciples that Jesus chose, they tend to be the shoutiest disciples, the most talkative ones, the ones whose personalities are pretty extroverted. And Jesus, he grabs them. And it could be that everyone's talking about why those three as they are uh, led away. But let me, let me offer to you a reminder that happens in Mark chapter 5. You ready for this? These three were together at one scene earlier in the teaching ministry of Jesus. And it took place in Galilee. And in, uh, in Galilee, Jesus is walking uh, through the city, and the ruler of a synagogue comes to him and says, my 12-year-old little girl, she's sick. And Jesus gives every indication that he's going to go to that person's house, and he's walking uh, through the village, making his way to that man's house. But you know there's an interruption. You can, you can see this in Mark chapter 5. But Jesus, he actually doesn't make it on time, does he? Because even as Jesus is standing uh, uh, in the middle of a crowd, as someone comes to Jesus and tells Jesus that it don't bother, she's already dead. And Jesus asks by name for these three. And he brings these three into the house. And Jesus, by his power, resurrects that little girl. He takes her by the hand and he says, arise. And she did. And Jesus told these three individuals not to share this information. But everybody in the village, they would have known that the sick girl was now well. And some in the village would have more than suspected that she wasn't merely sick, she was dead. And whatever haziness there was around that story, these three, they knew. So what does that mean? Try real hard not to solve the riddle to discern what the six days are about, to discern if the high mountain may be a hint of Mount Sinai, and it probably is. But just imagine what's happening here. Jesus is taking individuals who saw something that was beyond their imagination, and Jesus is going to take them to a high mountain, and he's going to give them a little bit more information that might help to solve that riddle of Mark chapter 5. Jesus is the leader. And part of the glory of God is understanding that Jesus is the one whom we can trust to be led to understanding. That Jesus is that one because what's on everyone's uh, mind, including these uh, three that are being led up a mountain, is the uniqueness of Jesus, the necessity of his death and his resurrection, and how the power of God is to be shown. And Jesus, he's the teacher. The glory of God is actually shown even before the transfiguration as Jesus assumes leadership and takes these three children of God high on this mountain. The glory of God is seen in the leadership of Jesus. And then continuing with the second half of verse 2 and on to verse 4, we see the glory of God revealed in the purpose of Jesus. Notice how uh, it seems almost without warning that Jesus is transfigured. Almost without warning. In the other Gospels, we know that Jesus is, or that the disciples are very, very tired. But almost without warning, Jesus, he's transfigured. 
And the, the, the word doesn't refer to his very nature being changed. He's still Jesus. They recognize him as Jesus, but his outward appearance is magnified, transformed. There's something about the way they see him that is different, even though it is the very same him. That might be, by the way, why Mark um, draws a, a, a lot of attention to the very clothing of Jesus, a clothing that shines very brightly. In the other Gospels, it's the face of Jesus that's shown brightly as well. But this is still Jesus, but he's made brighter. There's something more clear about him. It's not so much about a change of Jesus as about a revelation through Jesus. And all of this brightness, if we know anything about the Old Testament, all of this brightness is to indicate God's own glory. Jesus is still Jesus. He's recognizable. He's the same man. But now they're seeing the fullness of glory that is on Jesus. Hmm. Well, there might be a little bit of an analogy to this. He's still Jesus, but he's different. Do you, you realize that there are some people that you know and some people that you really know? Some people you know vaguely, some people you really know. But even among those people that you really know your close friends, family members, even among those people, there can be a time where they go through something in life or there's some kind of conversation and then you really know them. You thought you really knew them, now you really know them. Sometimes that's a tragedy in how they handle themselves in tragedy. Sometimes it's tragedy that you experience and through that you begin to know people far better. And something like that happens. They know Jesus more clearly. But very quickly on the scene, there appears to the disciples two other individuals, Elijah and Moses. Remember I talked about not uh, uh, chasing after the details? I don't know how they know that that's Moses and how they know that's Elijah. I don't know that. And I've consulted with five commentators, and they don't know that either, and I'm okay with that. But if you know your Bibles, you understand that Moses uh, Moses died more than a thousand years ago. He shouldn't be there. I mean, we don't know where he's buried, but he died more than a thousand years ago. And Elijah, he was carried up in a a whirlwind. We uh, We don't know exactly how he died. That makes him unique, but it's not just Elijah that's there. It's Moses with him. And, and what's remarkable is that they're just talking. They're just talking. Imagine what this might have felt like to uh, Peter and James and John. Let me help you imagine that. Have you ever stood in a, in a group of people and you're talking to someone and then the someone turns away and they walk and they start talking to someone else. The transition didn't feel very smooth to you and you feel their absence. I'm sure I've done that to some of you uh, out in the narthex. But you know that feeling. But imagine that here. Jesus, they've been walking with Jesus And what happens, Jesus, as soon as he becomes uh, radiant, Jesus turns from them and he goes to two others. And it's almost like, yeah, I I know, I know what that feels like. And, And the disciples, they're removed from center stage and it's Jesus and he's talking uh, with uh, Moses and Elijah. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what they're talking about. Luke actually says something about that. Luke says that they're talking about the Exodus. 
strange. You're talking about this departure. But in Luke's gospel, it's not merely the exodus that took place in the Old Testament. It's about the future exodus of Jesus, that Jesus is going to die, uh, and that he is going to uh, uh, exodus from uh, the earth, ascend into heaven. But they're just talking, and really what they're talking about is the teaching of Jesus just prior to this event, that I must be rejected and killed and rise again on the third day. Something about that is the subject matter of their discussion. Is it a conference, you think? It's more like a friendship. That these individuals are individuals that are in the know. They understand that Jesus is superior. A note that only Jesus' clothes are described as radiant. So Jesus is superior, and he's talking to Moses and Elijah, and the disciples, they have all of these things spinning in their head. They're, they're curious uh, about the uniqueness of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, the power of the kingdom of God, and what are they left to do to just stand there and watch, take this in. And there's a lot actually to be revealed in just this uh, council. Uh, here, the glory of God is revealing the purpose of Jesus. Moses understands that purpose. Elijah understands that purpose. No one needs to be persuaded by Jesus. In fact, everyone, they seem to get it. They understand what's going on. It's the three disciples that are, well, they're standing aside. This is Jesus' purpose, and it's a purpose known by Moses and Elijah. As we think about why Moses and Elijah, the clearest, most, most common answer to that question is that Moses and Elijah represent the entire testimony of the Old Testament. And I love that solution, and I want to encourage you to love it as well, that Moses summarizes the teaching of the law, and Elijah, although Elijah's not a writing prophet, there's no book of Elijah, uh, Elijah summarizes the teaching ministry of the prophets. And both of them are in total agreement. Here's Jesus, and they're talking to Jesus. They've always been in total agreement. This is God's glory. You can look at the very end of Malachi, the very, very end of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, and the very end of Malachi chapter 4, you actually find Moses and Elijah together. And it's used the same way. There's a, there's a kind of a, a summary there. Moses, who taught the laws and the commands of God to the people of God. And you have uh, Elijah, uh, who is the great uh, prophet of God. And they show up right at the very end of Malachi. But the summary there is that the purpose of Jesus is not a surprising purpose. It's a purpose that has been unfolded in world history in the story of redemption. The glory of God and the purpose of Jesus. The glory of God and the submission of Jesus. Let's move on. Now, Peter responds. And, and Peter, he says something that seems a little bit crazy, but keep in mind that we need to understand verse 6. Peter's terrified, and Peter doesn't know what to say. It's right there in verse 6. He's, he's terrified, and he doesn't know what to say. So don't be too hard on Peter with his crazy response. But Peter gets very, very talkative, and he says in verse 4, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Right? He's recognizing something about the privilege of these three being there. Rabbi, it's good that we're here. I don't believe we need to understand that as a boastfulness on Peter's part. Peter says, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Three tents. What do you suppose that means? What do you do in a tent? In the first century, you live in a tent when you're in a place of wilderness. You don't live in a house, you live in a tent. 
And it may be as simple as this. Peter, he's not foolish. He's tired. He's terrified. He doesn't know what to say. One commentator says that Peter's proposal is simply a clumsy way for a practical man to express the sense of the occasion. And Peter suggests maybe this moment is so significant we build tents so that it never ends. So that Jesus and Moses and Elijah are always with us. It never ends. And some have been hard on Peter and said Peter's trying to establish a kingdom of Peter rather than a kingdom of Jesus. But it could also be the equivalent of Peter pulling out his iPhone and snapping a picture. I don't mean to make light of this, but it could be a matter of wanting to freeze the moment. There's, this is the kingdom. And if I freeze the moment, I can go down the mountain, I can bring others. We, we have a train of people coming to see this. Go easy on Peter. Because it's not Jesus who replies to Peter, is it? It's actually God. It's almost, uh, almost an answer to Peter, God speaking instead of Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? Peter, he's talking to Jesus, but Jesus says nothing. He's submissive to the Father. Who answers Peter? I mean, just in your mind's eye, ask that person a question and hear the answer come from above. How remarkable that is. And God speaks. The vision of the disciples is actually taken away. A cloud comes so that they can't uh, see anything, uh, just like a marker of the very presence of God in the past. And in verse uh, 7, God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. God's talking right now, not Jesus. This is my beloved son, listen to him. This has happened a little bit like this in the past. Do you recall when Jesus was baptized? You look at Mark chapter 1. And when Jesus was baptized, it was a similar thing. I mean, at the uh, heaven, uh, uh, there's a voice that comes out of heaven and the voice speaks. But that voice was addressed to who? Have you forgotten? In the baptism, God says this, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. But now, God is not speaking to Jesus. God is speaking to the disciples. The disciples, the ones who are left out of the conversation with uh, Moses and Elijah, they're not left out of this conversation. God addresses them. That's very poignant for us to understand. That in Jesus' silence, he knows that the message that the disciples are going to hear is not a message that's different than what he would tell them. But when God says to listen to him... God is actually taking his glory and directing it to Jesus and saying, listen to this one. It's, it's the glory of God that's seen in the submissiveness of Jesus who stands. He's actually invisible, and he's on the mountain with them, but he says nothing. And God, he turns the disciples' hearts to his own will by turning the disciples' hearts to Jesus. I'm speaking to you now, listen to him. Isn't that remarkable confirmation? And the command to listen to him, it's actually a command. In the Greek, it's a firm command, listen to him. So that's the glory of God and the submission of Jesus who waits for the Father to confirm his authority. And then finally, the glory of God and the instruction of Jesus. They gotta come back. You gotta come back, you're not gonna live up there on the mountain. 
No one made any tents at all, not even for uh, the three disciples. And they come back. And remember what has consumed their minds thus far. The uniqueness of Jesus, the death of Jesus, his resurrection, the power of the kingdom. And as they come down the mountain, uh, Jesus warns them to be silent. And we've seen this before. He charges them not to say anything. But it's different now, isn't it? It's different now. It's not just a charge to not speak. It's a charge to not speak now. There is going to come a time when you must speak. The, the kind of thing that Jesus says to them, is, it sounds like a, like a restriction. Don't say anything. It's not a restriction. It's permission. He's guiding them. You're going to say it at this point. When I rise from the dead, that's when you say it. Now, that sounds very obvious, but I want you to look at Mark chapter 16, verse 8, and I want you to understand what the women did when they went to see Jesus, uh, see the empty tomb. Do you think they said anything? They were very nervous. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Because if you describe what happened on that mountain after the death of Jesus, after the resurrection of Jesus, count on being rejected. Count on being persecuted you yourself might be killed. And that's what happens. It's not a restriction, it's permission. Say this later. Now they come down the mountain and they're questioning Jesus about the, uh, what rising from the dead might mean, and they're uh, questioning Jesus largely, it seems, because of the teaching of the scribes. There's something about the scribes that have uh, hounded uh, their thoughts. And Jesus uh, says that the scribes were right in a way, Jesus says that Elijah, uh, the prophet, did come to restore all things, but he finished his task. He's done. You saw him on the mountain. He's done. He wasn't supposed to make the restoration happen. He was supposed to point to the one who will. Elijah did his job. But Elijah, he not only came and preached, but he also suffered. He was persecuted at the hands of the religious leaders. They did to him whatever they pleased, Jesus says. It's a bit of a foretaste to the future of the disciples. But I want to tie all these things together with something that's good and something that's bad. All of these things, the glory of God that's seen in the leadership of Jesus, uh, that's seen in the purpose of Jesus, seen in the submission of Jesus, and that is uh, seen in the instruction of Jesus. There's something good about this and something bad. There's something good, first of all, is this. All of God's plans are experienced in Jesus alone. Moses and Elijah, they knew that and they listened to Jesus. The entire law and the entire prophets points to Jesus. The entire story of redemption finds its climax in Jesus. God has just confirmed this very thing. All of his plans are made known in Jesus. And when the cloud dissolves, what do you see? When the cloud dissolves, it's just Jesus. That's really what Mark's gospel is all about. Which means that if you want to know how God's kingdom is realized, listen to Jesus. If you want to know how all things are restored, listen to Jesus. If, if you want an end to pain and sorrow and sickness, and you want all those things to be dealt with, listen to Jesus. If you want an answer to injustice, listen to Jesus. If you want the riddle of yourself solved, listen to Jesus. How will your life be worth anything? Listen to Jesus. That's helpful, but there's something that's difficult. 
It means you can't listen to yourself. That's what it means. It means you are not the authority of yourself. Authenticity for you is not discovering more and more and more about you. It's discovering more and more about Jesus. Peter spoke for you and I when he said that Jesus should never be rejected, should never be killed. And Peter spoke for you and I when he wanted to freeze the presence of Moses and Elijah and Jesus on the top of that mountain to this very day. If you want to be whole again, a real and lasting and peaceful self, you actually don't have what it takes, not in the least. And if you don't listen to Jesus, you're going to see what I mean. One day, you'll see what I mean. Jesus is the very climax of the story of redemption. There's no salvation and no restoration apart from him. Delight in that, but also chastise your heart for trying to be that Jesus. You can't. Well, Jesus is God's only appointed instrument and not you. That's what this passage shows us. Would you join me in prayer as we close? Well, our Father, we we thank you that uh, we are not given authority to save ourselves, and we're not given power to make ourselves whole. Would you help us to listen to Jesus? In his name, amen.